welcome to the Cabramatta Vineyard Church podcast. We are a missional community in southwestern Sydney that desires to be a preview community of God's generous rule and reign. For more information, check out cabramattavineyard.org.au. To keep it simple, may have been me since this morning. I thought it would be appropriate for us to do a little bit of theology. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Uh, Last time we were in the Revelation, we looked at chapter 17 and 18, uh, which is about the fall of Rome although John describes it as the fall of Babylon. And chapter 18 is a long lament uh, for Babylon, which comes in three sections as the people who benefit most from Rome are lamenting its demise. So that's the elites, the merchants who get rich from the city, and the seamen, the sailors, who bring the wealth to Rome. Those three groups all lament the demise of the city because basically life's going to be harder from now. Just bear with me while I get my glasses. the section because the section is the first 10 verses of chapter 19. Whoever uh, put the chapter markings in didn't have a real good grasp of the way in which the revelation works because when John starts a new section he usually begins it with what he's seen with something opening in heaven and We ran out of time last week, so we didn't uh, have a look at the first bit of chapter 10, uh, chapter 19. So we're going to go there this morning, and then we're going to talk a bit about the millennium. Right, you guys have heard of the millennium, have you? Right, so we're coming up to one of the most controversial and most disputed parts of the book of Revelation. In fact, it's probably one of the biggest areas of dispute among Christians um, in the whole of the Bible. So I thought it would be appropriate for us to spend a little bit of time looking at the uh, main views of that, and then we'll come back and we'll dig into the text next week or next time. So let's read Revelation 19, 1 to 10. And remember that this is the end section of the previous vision. So after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power 
belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever. So John is back in heaven because all of the characters in this part of the vision are heavenly characters. And he hears a multitude of people that we first saw in chapter 7. Uh, this is the crowds before the throne with the lamb sitting on the throne. And they cry out in worship. And this reminds us that even in the midst of the dark description of the judgment of the, the, the city and the empire, that Revelation is a worship text. It's surrounded by and filled with worship and some of our greatest hymns and worship songs are taken directly from the text of Revelation, as we'll see in a moment. And in this case, the people in heaven are worshipping for the judgment on the empire and on the city, signified by the smoke from the city, that signal signalling that the city is burning and that smoke goes up to, to heaven uh, forever. Now, the word they worship with is the word Alleluia, which is very familiar to us from our Christian worship. But this is the only place where it occurs in the whole New Testament. So it's only in chapter 19, four times, um, we hear this cry, Alleluia. It's a Hebrew word that just means praise to the Lord or praise to Yah. Um, Alleluia. Um, familiar to us, um, but we're using a Hebrew word. And praise is offered to God for his judgments, especially on the prostitute who represents the city of Rome. And as they're crying out in worship, the main worship beings of heaven, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, fall down on their face and they cry out, Alleluia, as well. Uh, Amen, Alleluia. And then a voice comes from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Now, we don't know whose voice that is. All right, probably not God's voice because it's saying, "Praise our God." Uh, can't clear that up for you because I don't really know. Just making the observation, and then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, "Hallelujah!" For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. How many times have we sung that? Right, we had a bit of a uh, trip back to scripture in song days this morning. Um, and this is another one that comes out of the scripture in song canon. 
uh, back in the late 70s and the early 80s when the worship movement first started to emerge. Um, and there were Christian musicians who were looking through the scriptures and finding scripture songs or portions of scripture that could be put to music so that we could use them in worship. In this case, we are using the worship of heaven and directing it back to God himself. But what are we rejoicing about? The crowd is saying, let us rejoice and exult and give the glory, give God the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And this brings to the close this particular vision of the judgment of Babylon. Remember that this, this vision started with a woman riding on a monster and the woman's dressed in purple and purple for royalty and red for basically immorality, for sin. And she invites the people of the earth to participate in her adultery, to join in her wickedness. Now at the end of the vision, we have a picture of a different woman. This one is a bride on her wedding day, dressed in fine linen, pure white. And we're told that instead of adultery and immorality, that the white symbolises the righteous deed of the saints because the bride of the Lamb is the people of God. Now we're not describing, we're not um, being told, uh, this is not the account of uh, of the marriage feast. What the angel says in verse 9 He says to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now given the lament in chapter 18, it would be easy for us to look around us at the trappings of empire, of power, of wealth, of influence and mistake what blessing looks like. And this is a temptation that remains for us today, to look at the powerful with their influence, to look at the wealthy with the opulence of their way of life, and to think that's what blessing looks like. In fact, there are sections of the Christian church who think that's exactly what blessing looks like. That blessing means that God's going to make you rich, and so you'll have your $10,000 watch on and you'll... uh, drive your $150,000 car and live in a big McMansion somewhere or other, that these are the signs of God's blessing. The angel says to John, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, the bride is us. The bride are the people of God. And what we're clothed in are righteous deeds. Just think about that for a moment. 
If you were going to be clothed in your righteous deeds, would it be embarrassing to go out in public? <laughs> I'm not going to unpack that. I'm just going to let yeah, that go. That's what the angel seems to imply. He said, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But the angel says, don't do that. I'm just a servant of God like you. Worship him, he said. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, now we're just going to pause on that last sentence a little bit because that seems to come in from who knows where. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What are we talking about? What do we think that means? Is it saying something like when you speak of the things that Jesus has done, that you're actually prophetically empowering what is to come? I think that gets at what, what it's trying to say. It, it's not really explained. It's just a sentence that's there in the middle of the text. The testimony of Jesus, that's when we testify, when we speak out what God has done or is doing in our lives. That this is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, when we uh, tell other people about what God's been doing for us, that, that actually releases the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Right? The spirit of prophecy, the spirit of prophecy is the Holy Spirit. Um, and prophecy is not just about spoken words. It's about uh, prophetic action as well. And I think what John is saying is that when we bear witness, when we tell each other or other people about what God has done in our lives, that this releases the Holy Spirit to do that again. Alright, so if I testify about God healing me from an incurable doc a disease that the doctors say I'm going to have for the rest of my life, then this releases the spirit of prophecy to release healing. Mm. Right, so this is one of the reasons why, why in a conference se se setting, often the people leading the conference, when something miraculous happens, they'll get the person up on the stage to say what happened. Because in saying what happened, in testifying to Jesus, what they're doing is releasing faith and releasing the Holy Spirit to do it more or to do it again. You get it? Um, now, that's not the main point of this passage. It's just an interesting little line uh, there... <laughs> Who knows why? Just a little something. <laughs> In verse 11, John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flaming fire and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of of God Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I wonder who this is. Um, you'll have to wait till next time to find out. <laughs> <coughs> because we're not going to dig into the details here. Because as I told you a little while ago, John says, Then I saw heaven opened, which is, what is his way of signifying in the text. This is the start of a new vision. Now, this particular vision comes in seven parts. Now, you know if you've been following with this series that seven is very important in John's prophecy. That there are all of these series of seven. So he had the seven seals opened. Um, That's wax seals, not large aquatic mammals. Um, Then seven trumpets. And then seven bowls of wrath. And so John is describing um, history and the future in these series of sevens, this is the last series of seven. But the seven parts are all indicated by the phrase, uh, then I saw. Now, if you're reading in English, it's not always easy to pick that out. But if you look here in verse 11, then I saw heaven opened. Right? Then... Um, in verse 17 then I saw an angel standing in front of the sun or standing in the sun for us that would be quite uncomfortable verse 19 and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth verse 20 uh, 20 verse 1 then I saw an angel coming down from heaven right Verse 4 of chapter 20. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority was given. So we have um, these seven, this vision that comes in seven parts, or maybe it's seven visions. Each one begins with this series of seven. Now the reason that's important is because the millennium, which we find out in verse the first three verses of chapter 20 is the centre one of seven. So it's one, two, three, the millennium, one, two, three. Which tells us that the way we understand the millennium should be put into the context of the whole seven pictures. So the millennium, a millennium is a period of a thousand years. 
Right now, most of us are old enough to remember uh, the millennium turning when we went from 1999 to 2000. Even though technically the new millennium didn't start until we went from 2000 to 2001. Because technically the year 2000 is the end of the previous millennium, not the start of the next one. But that's not the way our numbers work. Uh, you may remember the millennium bug and all of the worry that was going around about this disaster that was going to happen when the computer clocks didn't work and everything computerised crashed. Um, I bought some canned food and some water. Oh, bless you. I think that was prudent. But nothing happened. Uh, there, was, there were predictions of the end of the world because we get excited when the thousand years finish. Of course, Jesus wasn't using the uh, Julian calendar. Um, now, we're not sure what calendar the Holy Spirit uses. Probably it's a Hebrew one. Nonetheless, we're going to have a look at the millennium and what different groups of Christians... Now, I was a little pessimistic about how many people would come. So I only figured off five of these, so you have to share. That word about hope was you. So this is just a chart that comes from uh, Wiki Commons. Uh, it does come from Wikipedia. Well, it comes from WikiCommons, the, the diagram. And it sets out for us the three main versions of the millennium. So you'll see post... Uh, now, on this particular picture, we have two versions of premillennialism. Version 1, version 2. Then the third view is post-millennialism. And the fourth view is amillennialism. Now, we should mention that there's only this single paragraph, Revelation 21 to 3, in the whole Bible that mentions the idea of Jesus reigning for a thousand years on earth. Just as there's only one verse in 1 Thessalonians that talks about the idea of a rapture, doesn't use that word rapture, that idea of Christians being whipped off, up off to heaven um, and disappearing from the earth, um, leaving behind all of the people who don't believe in Jesus. Right now, if you've heard that particular view, and I'll be very surprised if you haven't, <coughs> then that particular view belongs to number two. So we're going to start with uh, post-millennialism, which is number four, because it's probably the oldest view. And I'm going to read out the description by uh, an eminent theologian named Thomas Schreiner. He says, Post-millennialists maintain Christ will return after a long period of blessing on earth. Hence the prefix post, meaning after. Christ will come after the millennium 
after the millennial reign, the new heavens and the new earth will arrive. The 1,000 years are not literal, but signify a long period of time in which the world is transformed by the gospel. Some post-millennialists believe the 1,000 years begin at an undefined time in history, some point after the resurrection of Jesus. Other post-millennialists believe the 1,000 years began at the resurrection. The timing of the millennium is not vital for the post-millennial position. Now, post-millennialism was very popular in the 18th and the 19th century. Um, so this idea that human, uh, humans under the influence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit will make the world better. The world will get better and better and better and there will be this long period where things on earth uh, um, steadily improve and this is the millennium and at the end of the millennium, post-millennium, then Jesus will return and we get the final judgment and all of that. Right. So the second coming and the final judgment happen at the end of the millennium. Now, many European Christians held to this post-millennial view because of this idea of the uh, Reformation, then the Enlightenment, um, and we got smarter, we had the scientific revolution, we had the industrial revolution, and a lot of people who write books, their lives got better. And so there was a period of great optimism, particularly in the Victorian period at the end of the 19th century. And so there was this belief that this was the millennium, that humans were steadily improving everything about life, and so this is what the Bible predicted, and that soon the second of com coming of Jesus would arrive. Then there was World War One, And after World War I, Europeans were no longer optimistic about human progress and um, how well we were doing. When they saw that this amazing scientific revolution uh, could produce weapons that could destroy millions and millions of lives in whole countries. Post-millennialism is still around. Um, the Pilgrim Fathers, so the guys who started white America, were all post-millennialists. And they believed in this thing called manifest destiny. Right? They believed that they were going to a new continent to set up God's kingdom on earth and that God's kingdom would bring freedom to the whole world. Now, there are plenty of American Christians who still hold to a version of this view, right? And they're the ones who gave us Donald Trump and are trying to give him to us again. Like, that would be a good thing. Right, people who hold a post-millennial position often combine their faith with political action because they believe that we can transform the world through politics. 
I'm politically active, but I'm a little more pessimistic about what politics can do. Because it turns out that politicians are all human. And because politicians are all human, today is the first day of the NAC. And I reckon that there are a lot of federal politicians who are feeling quite nervous this morning, uh, now that we have a National Integrity Commission. The second view that we'll look at is the one at the bottom, amillennialism. Now this is the position that's closest to what I hold. It means literally no millennial, no millennium, but such a label is not the best descriptor of the position. Realise uh, millennialism is better. The thousand years in this view stands for a long period of time and does not designate a literal thousand year reign. Amillennialists argue that the millennium, which began with the resurrection of Jesus, will last until the second coming. During this time, deceased believers reign spiritually with Christ in heaven in the intermediate state, awaiting their physical resurrection and the renewal of all things. And Satan is bound in the sense of being bound at the cross while the gospel goes out to the nations. Other millennialists think that saints coming to life refers to regeneration, that is, us becoming Christians, instead of reigning in heaven. And thus there is some diversity within amillennialism concerning what it means to come to life and reign with Christ. Now most English uh, theologians and churches and most European churches hold to different versions of amillennialism. And in my view, this is the position that best reflects what John is getting at and what the book of Revelation is at. But it is not the most famous position. <clears throat> um, particularly in America. So amillennialism was championed by Augustine, so it was the dominant view in Europe and England through the late medieval period. But this view was challenged by uh, Wacom of Fiore, who was a Cistercian monk who lived in the 12th century. And he believed that the age of the spirit was going to arrive sometime in the 13th century. Right, that's the 1200s. Um, seems a bit disappointing to me that he didn't realise he was already living in the age of the spirit uh, because the viewpoint of the New Testament seems to me to be that the age of the spirit began at Pentecost and will continue at the return of Jesus. Uh, his views didn't come to pass. But this was the first guy who set the millennium as a future event. And that's the big difference between the pre-millennial position and the post and amillennial positions. This idea that there is a thousand years going to happen in the future and for pre-millennial uh, believers, it's a literal thousand years. Right, so they're taking something from a book of symbols and saying this will literally come true. They might be right. I doubt it, but they could be. 
Now, because there's so much diversity of opinion, it's actually quite important for Christians to hold their views of these lightly and be willing to admit that we don't know for sure and we could be wrong. Um, I grew up a dispensationalist pre-millennial. I'm actually a boomer, not a millennial at all. So, by the end of the 19th century, pre-millennialism was the most popular view in the United States. And because the United States have a spiritual gift over the country of communication, this view has been spread around the world and it's particularly strong among Pentecostals. Um, <coughs> so when I was going up, I listened to tape series and sermon series of people taking a whole week or a whole weekend just to teach the details of pre-millennial theory. Uh, and often um, these Bible teachers have very detailed timelines outlining what's going to happen in the future. And they would teach the whole book of Revelation very differently to the way in which I've taught it over these last few months. So Tom Schreiner says, Premillennialists say Christ will literally return to earth before the millennium, hence the prefix pre, and will reign 1,000 years on earth before bringing an end to everything at the end of the millennium. Most premillennialists believe the 1,000 years designate a literal period of time, but such a view is not necessary for the position. For one could believe in a literal reign of Christ on earth for a long period of time, other than exactly 1,000 years, and still be premillennial. Premillennialists are divided into historic and dispensational premillennialists. So that's the two pictures, right? The historic view is picture number one, where we have the tribulation and Christians live through the tribulation. Christ comes at the end of the tribulation and sets up a 1,000-year reign of Christ. And then Satan is released at the end of that 1,000 years. There's a final battle, and then eternity begins. All right? Now, in this dispensational view, there is a rapture of the church that happens either at the start of the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation. Right? This was the view that I grew up, that Christians would miss out on the worst of the uh, tribulation, but it would happen after three and a half years of the great tribulation. Um, <coughs> now, this idea of a rapture of the church is based on very tenuous biblical evidence. Right? There's only one passage in the whole of the New Testament that could be interpreted that way, but it's probably not the best way to read that bit of 1 Thessalonians. So 
Historic premillennialists um, identify themselves with the premillennial church fathers, including Papias, Justin Martyr, and Irenaeus. Right, they're three important uh, like first century Christians, first and second century Christians. Dispensational premillennialists who first appeared in the 19th century are distinguished from historic premillennialists by arguing for a secret rapture seven years before Jesus returns to inaugurate the millennium. Dispensational premillennialists emphasise the fulfilment of promises to the Jewish people during the millennium. So all of the prophecies in the back half of Isaiah about the lion, the lion lying down with the lamb and the kid sticking his hand in the scorpion's nest and it being okay, premillennialists or dispensationalists will argue that this will happen in that 1,000 year reign of Christ. Now, this dispensational view, which is probably the most widely uh, believed view amongst Western Christians, is the one that has the least support in scripture and it's the most recent historically. Right? Nobody believed it before the, 19th, before the middle of the 19th century. Um, and yet it has become the dominant one. And so if you've read uh, Tim LaHaye's um, books or watched the Left Behind movie, this is the view that that is espousing. Now, what I want to propose to you this morning is a view that uh, is suggested by Tim Chester in his excellent book, um, which he calls Cruciform Millenarianism. Right, and that's on your sheet there. The millennium reign is the present reign of Christ over his people through his word. But this reign is a hidden reign, hidden under what is contrary, glory and shame, power and weakness, and victory through death. So in the present, this reign is cruciform or cross-shaped. It's expressed not in the domination of others, but in the mission to the nations and the sufferings of Christ's people. Right, so Revelation 12, 11 says they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Right, and the European theologian Jürgen Moltmann writes, it cannot be sufficiently stressed that, contrary to speculative misuse of these passages, the millenarian hope is a hope for martyrs. The praxis of this hope is resistance in the godless kingdoms of the world and the refusal to conform to their idol worship and cults of power. And so down the bottom there, I've set out for us the seven visions, which are the last sequence of seven in the book of Revelation. 
and we will come back to look at the details of these seven visions uh, next time. But all of these are introduced in the Greek by the phrase, then I saw. Two words in Greek. Firstly, in chapter 19, the bit that we read earlier, Jesus rides out on the white horse to rule the nations. And he rules the, the nations through his death and his word. This is something that already happened. All right, so the white horse is not something in the future. It's something that already took place. There is a call to gather for the harvest of destruction. Right? Verses 17 and 18. Then there's the final battle, which the guy on the white horse and his army of people dressed in white wins, but not by fighting it, by laying down our lives. Right? This is a description of the way in which the gospel triumphs, not by picking up an actual sword and stabbing people and shedding blood. That's the opposite of what Jesus preached. Jesus was a man of peace. He advocated um, peaceful resistance or non-resistance, laying down your life. Right? This is the way of the cross. This is what we're called to. Not taking up arms and blowing up our enemies. All right? You cannot defeat violence with violence. Right? Not ultimately. All that does is it multiplies the amount of violence in the world. This is hard for us to understand because for the whole of the history of our nation, we oppose violence with violence. At the start of chapter 20, Satan is bound for a thousand years and the millennium begins. So on this view, the millennium began at the resurrection of Jesus and it will end at his return. And so the saints reign for a thousand years and how do we reign? We reign by the mission of Jesus and the suffering of the people of God. This is the way we defeat evil and overcome the violence that is loose in the world. You see, in each of the sequences of seven that we've looked at so far, the first five describe something that happened already in history. So with the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, the first five um, are always describing events that have already occurred. And then the sixth and the seventh are things that are about to happen. Same thing here. The final judgment of the living and the dead happens in chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. And then God's new creation comes when heaven and earth are brought together and God comes to dwell with his people in the renewed earth. So we will come back and we will look at the details of these visions next week. 
But I was wondering, to finish off this morning, if this view has raised any questions for you. Would, um, Greg, would you say that the pre-trib dispensational view, it was, is that kind of the most popular and common one, even in conservative evangelical circles? Absolutely, yeah. yep. And I'd be very surprised if there's not lots of vineyard people around the country who hold that view as well. Really? Um, now, I haven't had conversations with other vineyard pastors about this for quite a while, but I expect that there would be some out there who would hold to this because it's, it's the view that's most accessible. If you, This book is not very common in more recent theological texts. So if you, if you buy the more recent commentaries on Revelation, say Fee or Wright, or, um, you're going to get an amillennial view. Um, but Beale's um, text on uh, or commentary on Revelation is pre-mill. Um, and there will be others that come out of the conservative evangelical American world where this is still very much the dominant view. Is it just there, or is it also like the Anglicans and like that side of things? <clears throat> um, I don't know what the view of the Sydney diocese would be. My guess would be that they would lean towards an amillennial view because um, Anglicans <coughs> still have their roots in Britain and amillennialism is the predominant view in, in Britain. Like you, you British Christians look at the American uh, uh, preoccupation with the millennial reign of Christ and scratch their head and think, what's wrong with you people? Um, it makes better movies. It does make better movies, yeah. yeah. Um, it's also for, for metal music as well. It also appeals to the martial part of us. Yeah, yeah, right. The part of us that wants to take up a stick and beat someone or punch someone in the face and say, I'm doing God's work. All right? Sorry? I think I'm saying that the pre-millennial view um, gives us the idea... Like, there'll be all, all kinds of millennial sects in the hills of Oregon and um, Nevada or elsewhere sort of living in their, on their communes, and they've armed themselves for the teeth, to the teeth um, because they were believing that they're going to be God's righteous army. right? So that righteous army that when Jesus shows up on the white horse, uh, they've already got their militia ready and they're going to be joining the holy battle and kill lots of pagans. All right? This kind of misrepresents who Jesus is. Right? It's as if through the whole of the New Testament... Jesus is one person, and then we get to the last three chapters and suddenly he becomes someone else. It's like that belief where people think they have to be buried because their body's going to be resurrected again. Yes, like, yeah. But if it's Jesus, like, he can do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he doesn't need you to do something to make it work. Yep. So apart from, like, say, people stockpiling guns, um, like for normal people, application-wise, how would... Like these different views differ in the way you just go about living a Christian life. 
Uh, well, the, the fight against climate change, one of the reasons why America is so reluctant to do anything about climate change is because of a belief of a belief that the world will just keep getting worse and worse and that this is God's intention. Therefore, there's no point in us taking any action on climate change that might hurt us economically because we're putting us, ourselves at a disadvantage for no good reason. Right? Because the planet's going to burn anyway, so why should we look after it? Right? These people should go back to chapters 1, 2 and 3 of the Bible and see what we were told to do there. Right? But that's, that's, that's a direct consequence. It's probably not a conscious consequence, but that goes with this... See, this is a worldview. Yeah. Right? It's a, it's a view that the world is evil... And we don't have to worry because we're God's people, so when things get really bad, we're going to fly. I think that's one of the biggest influences of it, is that escapism of like, yeah. it's all right, we've got to ticket out of here. Yeah, yeah. Um, we might be around for the first three and a half years, which are good anyway. And then, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know my dad taught it like church Christ. Yeah. I've taught it too. Bill Dumbrell was an ignorant Right, yeah. yeah. That's why I suspect that um, he, he was quite influential at Moore College yeah, right. and remain, you know, his writings remain influential in Sydney. So. I, I remember people arguing with him, of like, but aren't there, isn't there going to be like dragons with like scorpion tails coming? Like, you've got to look out for them. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. And they were serious. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they were like, no, there's dragons coming. Dragons. But there's like these scorpion tails coming sting everywhere. One of my year 11s came to me asking if I wanted to buy the school jacket for next year because they're going to have a dragon on it. Because dragons are powerful. If I have a dragon, at least half of your. Sorry? If I have a dragon. On their school jacket, yes. At least half of your school population genuinely believes that. It, it, it is Cabramatta High School. I don't know if it's been approved yet. <laughs> In Asian culture, dragons are powerful. Right? Dragons are good things. They, they, they scare away the demons. Dragons are powerful. It's just that they are. They're not scared. Violence and I think um, the pre-tribute too, like it, it's it's a very like um, it takes it takes the apocalyptic nature of the scriptures out of it. Yeah, you know, it's very literal. Yes, and and, and so it makes it maybe a bit more tangible. Um, but you, you you lose the mystery of, of the meaning. You know? yeah. And, yeah, yeah. We don't like not mystery. Like we don't like mystery. Yeah, we'd rather. The rationalist Well, and the reason these seminars used to fill up in the um, 70s and 80s with these Bible teachers coming to teach this stuff is because Christians thought they're getting let in on the secret, so they have this secret knowledge that all the sinners out there don't have. And so that gives us an advantage. Um, now, it was a drive towards sharing my faith, right? So when I believed this view, 
Um, I believed in the imminence of the return of Jesus. Right? There was a while there where I was expecting that Jesus would come come back before 1988. Well, I heard there was a whole thing, that whole thing, that's why people didn't set up like infrastructure on the earth. People put off getting married or having yeah. babies yeah. Um, because of this expectation, Jesus, there's going to be a great tribulation and then Jesus is going to come back, so why bother? Right? Instead I'll give my life to, to mission. Yeah. Right? So the giving your life to mission is an important thing, but if you understand what John is saying, that's what he's saying anyway, he's saying you should give your life to mission and be prepared to die for it. Um, but he's not saying sharp, sharpen your sword as well because you're going to need it. So. Mm. Mm. All right, I'm done. I'm not really sure where to go from there. It is, is it helpful to go through these different views yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. when I did um, the Jeremy <coughs> stuff one of the most like revelatory things that I did was look at doctrines and their foundation and how they impacted Christian views some of which I didn't even know were a Christian view I just thought that's what it meant to be a Christian but then of course by learning that this is a way that you can think amongst all these other interpretations, I think it doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah. It's either something you have or you don't have, you know about and you don't know about, you've been exposed to or you haven't been exposed to, but actually then like putting it on the table and just saying, all right, so this is where this came from, this is why it's been around, this is what it's attached to. If you have this in your life, you've probably actually been exposed to it. Do you think that there's actually cause to then pray? with people who have some of this stuff to break off anything like um, in terms of spiritual dynamics is, is there that like deception or that sort of stuff I, I think there is um, a fair bit of deception that goes on around this sort of stuff and usually people who are caught up in this particular view are very evangelical not for the actual gospel, but for their belief that this is, this is the thing that really matters. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons I put off teaching Revelation to the end of my ministry life was because there was a period of five, seven, eight, maybe ten years where I was obsessed with this stuff. And my focus, the focus of my Bible study was around all of this prophecy stuff, wanting to become an expert in being able to explain what it was about. And it wasn't until, um, I'm sure it was the Holy Spirit, but I wouldn't have had language for it, in that, pointed out that there's plenty of stuff in Scripture that we're sure about. Maybe I should give that my focus and leave these things that we're not sure about Till I've got these other things sorted out. Um, but there are plenty of Christians around, not not in our circles, 
But we have had people who would probably grab that stuff very strongly. I'd say so, yeah. Yep. And I would say that the uh, change of my views has happened over the period since I started this church. Um, but that's not because when I started the church I was consciously still holding a premillennial position. It was more that I decided I'd put this stuff to the side um, and I'm focusing on the kingdom and understanding what kingdom theology and kingdom mission is and I'll get to the eschatology sometime down the track. Um, because uh, I did find when I was searching through my files, <clears throat> I did find some stuff that I've taught in the life of this church, um, which has a premillennial flavour to it. That's <laughs> 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 you changed your knowledge, through your knowledge over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Any experience? Do you Or just It would be the influence of various different theologians that I follow. So Fee in particular and N.T. Wright. Um, who take a, a different view to the one that I grew up with. But I think it's important to remain theologically open. Um, we should be suspicious of any kind of dogmatism. Sorry? It's the scientist in you that's open to always thinking differently. Well, yes, yeah. And the idea that we should be guided by evidence. Yeah. I think it's good, but just in the conversation about this, it's good because it's easy when you're focusing even on just the kingdom of you, but our conscious Jesus and stuff itself. It's easy to get caught up in the fact that Jesus loves everybody and that, you know, we need to just be nice to everybody and care for everybody and then they'll see them. But there is an actual side of God that actually wants and needs people to to give their life to this thing. Well, John's making it very clear, as we'll see next time, that not everyone's going to make it. Yeah. Um, and when we come to consider the nature of hell, um, one of the things is... Um, when people make it into hell, are they going to start loving God? Of course not. They'll hate him more. Yeah. But that's for another week. Yeah. Well, people get more strong in their opinion when they're opposed to posts. But, yeah, when you find yourself being really dogmatic about something, at that point you probably need to question your motives. Yeah. Um, because dogmatism screens out data that doesn't fit with yeah, the way we see things. And so that puts us in a position where we're not able to shift our position 
because we've locked ourselves in. Yeah.